Welcome back, back, everybody. We are live with another episode of Africa is a Country Talk, or AIAC Talk for short. My name is Will Shorkey, and I'm streaming from Johannesburg in South Africa. And with me, as always, is Sean Jacobs, my co-host. He's in Brooklyn, in New York City. And we are the co-presenters of this Africa is a Country's weekly, weekly discussion and interview show. And this is episode 20. It's actually incredible to think that we've produced 20 episodes. And for all of our regular watchers, thank you for being with us on the journey. And for the newcomers, please stick around with us. We hope to always bring you some fabulous discussions. And as always, enabled by a wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel, who is based in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our last episode, we talked about the life and times and the legacy of recently deceased footballing legend Diego Maradona. And for that episode, we were joined by Pablo Medina Uribe, who is a multimedia journalist and writer in Bogota, as well as Tony Karen, who teaches in the politics of global soccer at the New School in New York. And he's also an editorial lead at AJ+. So you can watch clips from that episode on our YouTube channel, as well as the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all of the episodes from our archive. So please subscribe to our Patreon, become a member, and check out everything that you've missed before. So we have a great program uh, for you today. You might have noticed that Ethiopia has been in the news lately and not for, for great events. Um, um, and while those recent events are worth paying attention to, we want to dig deeper towards understanding how the Ethiopian case raises perennial questions about the nature of the African state, uh, whether development is an emancipatory goal, um, and how do we create constituencies that support like um, kind of progressive politics in the face of what is rapacious uh, global capitalism and what most people are just experiencing as crisis. And to help us make sense of exactly those questions that Sean just raised today is Eleni Santim Zalak, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University. She's also the author of recently published Ethiopian Theory, Revolution and Knowledge Production between 1964 and 2016. That was published by Bro in 2019. A new paperback has just come out by Haymarket Books. And this is among other published works that she has. And we're going to be using this book to navigate some of those questions. Um, but, you know, first, since we're talking about books again, we thought we'd bring back something from our earlier streaming days. I don't know if you guys who've been with us for a long time can remember. Um, but, you know, once we hit 20 episodes, it's good to remember our roots, good to remember how we started this thing. So, Sean, I wanted to ask, what are you reading? So, I mean, I've been reading a lot about uh, sort of what, what for some people might be an obscure topic, but it will make sense in a minute. I've been reading about gangster football leagues uh, in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and I mean, this is basically like in the late, I would say like throughout the 1980s and the early 1990s, some people claim it kept going up until about 2001. There were these football leagues um, organized on the Cape Flats in Cape Town uh, mostly in what people might describe as colored communities, working class communities. Uh, on Sundays, some people call them Sunday leagues, and you had local gang leaders would like sponsor a team, uh, you know, kit it out. And one of these teams actually was known as Brazil. They played in yellow and they played really good football. And one of their um, best players was like a, up until he was 17, he played for them, was a guy called Benny McCarthy. Who I can babble on forever. He's arguably. I'm not You're from Joburg, so you're like, who the hell is Benny McCarthy? Well, oh, he's South Africa's best football player ever. 
Don't tell me about people who played in, in like in the US, in the NASL, or anything like that. This is a man who won the uh, UEFA Champions League with Porto. He won the Intercontinental Cup also with Porto, by the way, with Mourinho, which we won't get into today. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Benny played in these leagues, and every time somebody asks him, like, where do you come from? You know, where's your football come from? He says, from these gangster leagues. And so the, uh, I'm trying to write, a, working on a project which is a little broader than just the gangster league. So I'm kind of interested in sport in South Africa in the 1980s and the, the early 90s. And, and particularly, ah, that's Benny right there. Yeah. Um, this is like a period characterized by, you know, mass political movements, but also political repression and also of like profound political change. And so, but at the same time, this was also a very violent period um, in South Africa's um, history. And, you know, everybody will tell you South Africa was a racist country. Uh, if you want a racial capitalist country, but it was also a very violent country and it was also very criminal. Apparently it was like a criminal regime. And so it's no surprising that like some of that criminality would sort of filter um, into society, but it also means that this was often like ways that people would cope, make lives, you know, create opportunity. And so I'm kind of looking mostly at football in that period. So I'm looking at the formation of the, the precursor to what in South Africa, the Premier League is called the PSL. And the, the, the league that became the PSL is this thing called the NSL. And even that league is sort of caught up in its founding and criminality. One of South Africa's greatest club, which I know some, uh, I think the producer Antoinette's gonna put that on the screen, um, Mamelodi Sundowns. This is a club from, uh, from Pretoria, Tuane, as some people would say Mamelodi. Um, and if you look at the picture, you'll see like Mark Williams in the second row, second from the left. That's a guy who scored the two goals for South Africa when they won the the um, African Cup of Nations in 1996. And, you know, other players like uh, Jesse Queen Lahodi, um, Love Mochafunia, Ernest Chawali, I think that's him in the back next to the guy in the purple shirt, you know, etc. Oh, actually, no, Ernest is sitting in the middle row. Sam Kambule is on the right. I'm going to stop. The point is just, I'm really interested right now in football and I'm just going back and reading some of the classics, you know, whether they be the book of Alegi's book, La Duma, rereading that again. Um, the work of um, Chris Baldman, who's, a, who's a, a really good sports sociologist from South Africa, and reading a lot of the old kind of writings that appeared in like South African newspapers, like the Sowetan City Press, um, because those were like the papers when you wanted to read about football at that time. Last part about this, and I will shut up, is that this is kind of stuff I cared about, and I was a teenager then, so this was like, you know, just going back into something that I loved. So, yeah, I'm very excited to be working on this project. So I'm reading just a lot of football. There's been a lot of football and a lot of 1980s political history from South Africa. Mm. This is interesting. I mean, I was, I was, I was saying to you when you uh, told me about this project is that when you were talking about it initially to me, for the first time, I began to appreciate how significant of uh, a role gangs play in communities as forming this sort of alternative state in areas where the state has completely failed or was completely absent and how it's in their interests to entrench their power to provide recreational activities to these communities because the standard line you get from a lot of you know liberal theory and media is that ah oh, all that needs to happen is that the state needs to build a soccer pitch in the community and youngsters are going to choose to stay off the streets they're going to be distracted by football and then that's the path of development for that community but it doesn't work because they have those football pitches and they're provided by these gangs and what they really need is rather than thinking of this as this individualist solution where you need to make the better decision as a young person they need the states to be involved in their lives and if it isn't 
then someone else is going to take up that role. And I mean, you could probably talk about different organizations operating as gangs would here in South Africa, whether it's a terrorist organization somewhere else. So yeah, I think this is, this and, is a really- And, and you'll find a lot of the, the, they were gangs, they weren't called gangster leagues, but you, you found these things in the Val. Like I read something the other day about a team like uh, Val Professionals. This is not getting into deeps of like sort of very parochial history. But yeah, like, you know, so similarly in Colombia, you have Pablo Escobar, mm. the sort of same kind of thing. The Camorra in, 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 in Naples, we talked last week about, about Maradona. I mean, the, the role that the Camorra played as, as almost like a state within a state. I think you're right that this is, this is something that doesn't get written about. I think the most, probably the best example of trying to show you how this worked in South Africa at that time is a film called um, uh, Cape of, The Cape of Storms. And it's about the two brothers called the Stachy brothers. Um, people in Cape Town would know them, Rasita and Rasat. <laughs> in Cape Town, you say Rasita and Rasat. So they dominated like the, the sort of like social life at that time. And it's like, it was a fascinating story about just kind of in this place called Manenberg, both kind of playing enforcers, also being violent. I think one of them went to prison for raping one of a young woman in the neighborhood. Um, then at the same time, they're also kind of like a form of leadership. They play like a leadership role in the community doing some form of social services. So very complicated. And I'm just kind of fascinated by that, that world outside. I mean, everybody reduces South Africa's history to like this really kind of radical political history. And it's like, nah, there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot, uh, lot that went out on in South Africa outside of that kind of formal um, uh, political awareness. But well, you, you want to talk about something you're reading. <laughs> you yeah, reading this speaking one. of African history, I'm reading this book by, I don't know. Oh, no, no. I don't know, I don't know this guy, but uh, some guy called Sean Jacobs wrote a book called Politics in Africa, Post-Colonial Politics in the Age of Globalization. I mean, he can write, he's a pretty good writer. Um, wherever he is, I hope he hears that. But um, it's funny that, that showed that little image of, of Benny McCarthy in Time Magazine and I think that image just sort of encapsulates what the central theme of this book is, which is that when apartheid ended in South Africa, it moved from being this country that had very, very limited media. Effectively, all media was through the state broadcaster. The state broadcaster engaged in heavy censorship of all of the content it was communicating to its audiences. And when apartheid ended, South Africa was integrated into global capitalism, its markets were opened, privatization of the media slowly began and South Africans were unleashed into the new world of, of media production and media consumption. So this is a, it's a really good book. And I mean, I'm, I'm making my way through it. And what I think I, I appreciated for the first time was exactly this point of how South Africans in understanding its post-apartheid history underestimate just how an extensive social force the media began to be in sort of constructing our post-apartheid identity and constructing the new political subject in South Africa because South Africans went from being these extremely politically conscious, radically inclined people to being ordinary consumers as anyone living under capitalism would be anywhere else in the world and understanding how the media played this very key role in reshaping the South African citizen as a consuming citizen, something that I didn't really sort of grasp until now, because you you sort of just 
you sort of just take that as being a given mm. about living in contemporary times and you never really understand the ways in which it actually happened. It was a concerted effort between the South African states, South African corporations, in some cases, South African civics, at building this new narrative of the new South African and, and liquidating political antagonism, not just by integrating South Africans into state apparatuses, but also in reshaping their preferences, reshaping their attitudes, and reshaping their behaviors. And the way that was done was through the media. No, totally. I mean, I'll just tell one quick anecdote because we, we got to invite, uh, bring on our guest. But one of the one of the chapters I write is about um, kind of soap operas, like the role that soap operas played in South Africa. And we underestimate kind of how people's political people's uh, you know their formation as political subjects after apartheid, like how that how how media played such a crucial role in that construction. So so and it's not very didactic. So one of them is like. This, in South Africa, television was dominated, and I would say it still is to some extent by the SADC, which is like a public broadcaster, right? Like in the old sort of BBC model, like a very sort of social democratic Western, which is ironic because this was the this was an invention of apartheid. But let's keep it at that. So they, the what they did after 1990, start I would say starting in 1993, a year before the elections, there was this one show that that the SADC funded, paid for, well, they, they commissioned it called Generations. And it, it basically focused on a rich black family who owns an advertising agency. And the whole, the way that the script notes and, you know, the, 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 the treatment and everything was, we would like to show you the world of black people running things. Mm. This was just, you know, this is, it's, it's very deliberate. Um, and it is also a world in which there are very, there are very few white people in this world, which is, which is sort of bizarre because the South African, ad industry in the like early 1990s, early, I would, some people might argue even till today is very much, you know, it's white dominated. And so to create like this, this strange world in, on, on TV. And, and part of that story is that this, the, the injunction was we need aspirational viewers. Mm -hmm. Viewers that can aspire to something and, you know, consumption was part of it, but also to become like new kinds of citizens, active citizens. So what the show would do was it would include storylines about things like how to furnish your home. So like one of the characters trying to furnish a home. So this is about consumption. Another is like how to manage your money. But it's not, as I said, it's not didactic. It's sort of woven into the storyline. But the one that probably takes the cake is the, there's another series that starts in 1998. It's called Isidingo. I think it, it, I think it ended last year or the year before finally. Yeah. I, I stopped writing. Yeah. I didn't even care much about it anymore. But anyway, Isidingo is interesting even way more. So 1998, first episode of Isidingo, this is the story, this is the, how it opens. There's a mine in a small mining town, um, and then there's a strike by the black workers, and the white family that owns the mine, they basically decide at that point that they need a black manager. And in again, in the notes, for like, you know, in the shows, in the script notes for the, for the show, it's like, what is the character that we need this character should be kind of like Nelson Mandela. So it's this character called Derek Nyati. <laughs> Derek Nyati also like marries like the daughter of that family. So there's an interracial marriage. The show also contains like the first gay kiss. But just back to the story of like, how does Derek Nyati resolve the crisis of the strike? He says, so the one part is like he becomes the manager and he tells the black workers that they should buy shares in the firm. I mean, should I say more? 
it's just like no more it, the setup was just brilliant. It was you know this was this was what what, uh, what um, you know. So in this in this book, I tell the story. I tell the story about advertising. This is it. I tell the story about um, uh, so oh, you you wrote it. You you wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, before people think we're doing like marketing here, this is all unplanned. This was a thing we thought we will never talk about books again, but we are. And by the way, we are talking about a book today. So just before I introduce the guests, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, or our website, africascountry.com. All our work is published under a Creative Commons license, so you should feel free to repost it. Um, also remember, during the show, if you have uh, questions for our guests, please put them in the chat on Facebook, YouTube, or the thread of the live stream, and we are happy to to. Uh, answer to ask those questions to our guests and, and maybe we might even try to answer them ourselves. So, okay, so today we are joined by Eleni Sentim Zeleke, who is an assistant professor, as Will said earlier, at uh, the Middle Eastern, um, uh, I'm going to mess up their long name, Mesas at Columbia University. And she's also the author of this great book now called um, Ethiopia in Theory Revolution and Knowledge Production 1964 to 2016. Um, and I think she's about to come on. There, there hey, she is. How are you? So you? I'm great. I'm doing great. I'm doing. And I'm happy that you came on the that you came on the program. This is really wonderful. So well, I'm happy that you're here today. Thank you for coercing me to come on. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're away from my secrets to the world that I'm like very persistent, right? <laughs> you were very persistent, but I'm glad to be here. It became like a math game. We won't, we won't get it to like 50, 75, 75 <laughs> is better than, okay, let's, okay. So, I mean, we want to talk, we want to talk, we want you to help us understand like the role of the state. We, we, we sort of, Ethiopia is there, it's in the back, it's, it's hovering there. And I think it, it, it might be useful to also at some point and to use Ethiopia as a way to like argue about these things. So, but to just to open to open the discussion and to like set us up, what do you mean when you say uh, the crisis of the African state? Sure. So, so what I'm trying to make an argument about Ethiopia is that uh, so much of the conversation um, about the Ethiopian crisis right now has focused on all of these really internal dynamics. Um, and I think that in order to understand what's going on um, in Ethiopia, we need to have a theory of the African state and we need to understand sort of what the problem of the African state is. Um, and I suppose the person that I'm really turning to when I think about um, the crisis of the African state is uh, Mahmoud Mamdani, who in his book, Citizen and Subject, tries to produce um, a theory of African politics and he really tries to ground that theory of African politics within an African experience. Um, and he's, he makes the argument that we shouldn't do, uh, we should study Africa through analogy that we need to really think about, you know, the dynamics of the African state and its particularities. Um, so one of the things that I think Mamdani argues is that the African state is constantly sort of flip-flopping between a form of decentralized uh, despotism and centralized authoritarianism, right? Um, and he links this problem to the post-colonial state, um, arguing that the post-colonial state is in fact um, 
inherited from the colonial state, right? And that the colonial state was governed um, through, well, the way the post, the, the way the colonial state operated was that it governed rural areas of Africa through customary law and ethnic polities while statutory law was reserved for uh, city dwellers. And so according to Mamdani, the African post-colonial state has been deracialized. Um, it, or the African post-colonial state has deracialized the city, but has failed to sort of establish um, institutions that link the rural and the urban in a fair and equitable manner. So we can characterize the city as a middle-class entity that is, you know, it's largely disconnected from rural reality in Africa. And I think this is important to, to, to think about because uh, rural populations um, in many parts of Africa, um, you know, constitute a large percentage of the population. In, in a place like Ethiopia, something like 80% of the population remains rural. Um, and of that 80% of the rural population, 75% are still engaged in smallholder uh, agriculture, right? So it's a very particular uh, social setting and, and political economy um, in Africa and, and in Ethiopia in particular, right? So, so part of what Mamdani is arguing is that the crisis of the post-colonial state uh, and the question of democracy is a question of how to reform um, direct, indirect rule, right? This, this system of um, governing the rural areas uh, through um, customary law and through ethnic polities, right? Um, and I suppose one of the things that he says is that post-colonial post politics is, is characterized by an attempt to either reform indirect rule through establishing a modernizing centralized authority, but then this provokes a reaction from the rural areas. And then what we see is a kind of return to decentralized despotism. Um, and, and that's the sort of flip-flop that he's talking about in terms of the crisis of the African states going between this uh, decentralized despotism and this centralized authoritarianism. Um, I suppose you know, many people might argue like, well, what does this have to do with Ethiopia? Because Ethiopia was never colonized. Um, and you know, there's a unique set of uh, circumstances in Ethiopia um, that needs to be theorized. Mamdani does include Ethiopia within this African experience, trying to talk about, yeah, he does. He, he, he talks about the Derg quite a bit um, in his book. Um, and I would argue that even though uh, Ethiopia was never formally colonized, um, the form of the state that was adopted, um, particularly after the Battle of Ottawa in 1896, the Battle of Ottawa, as many of you might know, is that battle between Minalik and the Italians that really establishes Ethiopia as a kind of sovereign state, right? And I would say the form of the state that is adopted after 1896 um, brings all of the problems that Mamdani identifies with the post-colonial state to Ethiopia um, very early on, right? Um, so this idea of what is the relationship between uh, local traders and international markets, how to incorporate different language groups under one political authority, etc. Those are questions that the colonial state is grappling with, the post-colonial state is grappling with, and it is the question that 
um, the Ethiopian state has to grapple with in terms of you know, defining itself as a territorial sovereign with boundaries that are fixed and that are recognized by an international world, right? Um, so, so, so I don't, so, so the, the, the scramble for Africa, I would say is defining the, the state form in Africa, even in a place like Ethiopia. And so, you know, even as early as 1876, we have somebody like Johannes, who is one of the sort of uh, well-known uh, king leader of Northern Ethiopia. And we see him in Masoa, which is a port town in Eritrea. And he's with the French council there and he's hanging out with the French council and he's, you know, he's aware of the scramble for Africa and he's saying to the French council, please help us define our territorial boundaries in relation to, um, in relation to Egypt actually, right? And what is also interesting is that Johannes is killed by the Mahdists in Sudan, right? And the Mahdists state is a response to Egypt, Egypt colonizing Sudan right and so and the Mahdist state is responding to 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 egyptian incursion in sudan but is also involved in its own project of, of expanding territory and establishing boundaries right so we have all of these multiple indigenous african states taking on uh the scramble for africa and having to define its boundaries um in ways that resemble the European nation state, right? And I think that that's crucial in terms of understanding some of the conundrums that are with us um, in Ethiopia today. A lot of people want to talk about the Ethiopian state as having this long legacy from Aksum to, you know, to Addis Ababa today. And, and, you know, of course there are state traditions in Africa all over the place. There's nothing unique about Ethiopia. State traditions have existed from Mali to, I don't know, everywhere, right? So, um, but we would never make the claim that, you know, Jenne, the Jenne state is, you know, um, the same as the Mali state of today, right? Because we understand that there's all these moments of discontinuity, even if there's also moments of, of continuity that connect Jenne to, Ma to the contemporary Mali state, right? So I'm not, I don't want to deny that there are state tr uh, traditions in the Horn of Africa that have continuity with the present, but there's, there's all these moments of discontinuity that need to be theorized, right? And so how does, how does the um, scramble for Africa, in a sense, reshape um, what the nation state is um, in Ethiopia, or what the state is, right? Because I think prior to the scramble for Africa, this notion of territorially bounded, uh, nation states is not really a thing that existed. We have a, a sense of sovereignty with overlapping boundaries and with people moving in and out of those overlapping boundaries, um, you know, freely. So, so there's something that's happening um, in the late 19th century in Ethiopia that means that it needs to think of uh, itself as having a, hom a kind of homogenous population within its territory. And that means that it is um, you know, dealing with, it has, a, it, it, it has a problem of plurality. How do you deal with all of these, you know, 80 something language groups that actually exist within uh, the boundaries of Ethiopia? How do you deal with the ways in which, um, you know, people are relating to different markets? How do you regulate that? I mean, you know, what is the role of, of the state anyways? The, the role of the state in many ways is to provide transportation and communication. Um, 
you know, infrastructures so as to connect the local to the international. And it's there to, to build a bureaucracy and, and a military um, and a police in order to control the movement of people and, and, and to interface the local with the international, right? Um, so, so we have all the problems of how to deal with um, diversity and so on, right? Uh, sorry, go ahead. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to ask a question related to that, um, right. which is where's the road you're traveling, but I mean, you, you've set it up really nicely where you help us understand how the state form, which countries during the, right. the 19th and 20th century inherited, did so because there was this wave of globalization which preempted uh, and sort of cemented modernity as, as, the, as, the, as the, the scene for the game which every country had to play. So uh, in the 20th century, especially many African countries embarked on these modernization projects which were foisted upon them by international conditions. And as you're helping us understand the conundrum now, they had to, on the one hand, integrate themselves into global capitalism and, and in the 20th century capitalism truly becomes global in, in a way that it hadn't been before. Mm. And this required building the central state capacity, which you're alluding to now, which required coordinating people, transportation, logistics, and so on. But it had, on, on the other hand, it had to find some way of maintaining local traditions of rule, which were in place in order so that they could entrench their power and so that they could rule by consent and so on. So. How, how was this tightrope walked by African countries in the 20th century? How do they go about trying to, to do this, to, to, to become modern, whilst at the same time being modern in a way that was, was local, in a way that could okay. incorporate people into the state project that you're talking about and, and do so in a way that breached across the divisions of language, ethnicity, and so on? So yeah, I mean, I think in the in the case of Ethiopia, I would say that what we had um, for most of the 20th century was very much a modernizing state that um, wanted to um, do away with ideas of um, plurality and to do away with um, ideas of um, multiple sites of sovereignty and so on. Um, so I would say Haile Selassie and the Derg. Um, you know, really saw themselves as trying to create a modern state that could have, um, you know, both coercive and I guess uh, some sort of consensus power over over its populations, right? So the, in, in a, under Haile Selassie, it was about establishing a national language, um, which was Amharic, um, really thinking of that population as homogenous, um, establishing a police force. So um, obviously in Ethiopia, Prior to, I would say, even the 1940s, you would have had multiple um, sites of sovereignty, and they would have their own capacity for violence. So, really trying to diminish the ways in which all of those localities would have a capacity for violence um, through things like establishing a police force and so on. Which I would say is what is interesting about the establishment of the police force. It's done with the British because Ethiopia was actually under British occupation right after. Um, the Italians left, and it was really the the, the British that really helped um, establish these sort of modern institutions um, in Ethiopia. So that's something to really think about as well. So I mean, I think what happens in Ethiopia, 
in response to both Haile Selassie and the Derg was the sense that, of, uh, you know, of what Mamdani's talking about, a kind of revolt from, from the periphery, from the rural areas, right? And then a need to reestablish sovereignty in terms that took account of um, the, the histories and diversity of, of the people that had been brought into the Ethiopian nation state, right? Um, and, and that's really what the EPRDF is a kind of experiment. It's a political experiment to, in which it's attempting to address um, the fact that the Ethiopian nation state is constituted through uh, you know, many, many different language groups um, and ethnicities and so on, right? So the thing that's interesting about um, the Ethiopian political experiment with the EPRDF, so from the 1990s, is that the language that they use in order to um, address this question of plurality is the language of the nation's, of nation's nationalities and peoples. So it talks about language groups and ethnicity through this idea of the nationalities question. And then the nationalities question, it comes from Soviet literature, right? And, and the ways in which the Soviets were attempting to uh, deal with the question of diversity, right? So that's a really interesting history. And, and, and where that language comes from is the fact that the question of nationalities was articulated by the student movement in Ethiopia in the 1960s and 1970s. And that student movement was very much a Marxist student movement, uh, very much also modernizers in many ways, but um, they really take on the language of the nation, nationalities and peoples as a way to think about the problem of how different groups have been incorporated into the Ethiopian nation state. But I would say importantly, they're trying to think about that in relation to capitalism, right? So if the nation state in Ethiopia is about regulating trade and transportation and establishing bureaucracy, it's also in incorporating these different groups in an uneven and combined way, as we, we might say, as the Trotskyists might say, right? So the nationalities question is also about thinking about the ways in which different groups um, have been incorporated you know, economically into um, the Ethiopian nation state, but also how Ethiopia itself has been incorporated into international hierarchy too. So it's, it, the nationalities question was always connected to the question of capitalism and how capitalism creates uneven and combined development, right? So that, that entire history, however, has been somehow forgotten. And we talk about the nationalities question simply in terms of um, you know, these primordial identities that have existed in Ethiopia over time, clearly even the ways in which the nationalities are described in Ethiopia today are somewhat, you know, they're, they're identities that have been fashioned. I'm, um, you know, not to say that- Territorial, yeah. Right, they're not, they're not just invented in the sense that they can't come out of thin air, but they definitely have been fashioned in order to, you know, um, produce a sense of a, a political collectivity that can be addressed in a particular kind of way, right? So, um, so that was a really long way of answering your question. No, that's great. You actually, what you're doing, is like what you're doing really well for us is we're having our own little sort of of the of the screen notes where we're just like, okay, she's answering that right now. So, okay. but I want to I want to just do like pause for a little minute here. So, um, it seems like so is 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 Melis's project Melis and Awi for people who don't often know Ethiopian history. You've got like. Uh, Selassie is emperor, 
1974. This is an imperial, as you well explained, it's a sort of, it's an imperial project. It's a local imperial project. It's a local imperial project, but people need to be really careful when they say project. that. You have to be yeah. careful about like that project, yeah. Right. You sort of I have a question which let me just set this up for people who don't kind of note. So there's a local there's a local project, it's local, as you're right. It's it's imperial, but it's it's dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's then that project runs into its own problems and you yeah. it gets overthrown by a military regime. And mm-hmm. then there's the students who I think were protesting against the against Selassie, they now also run up against the military regime. Okay, stop yeah. me. Help me there, help me there. So what we have in Ethiopia in in the 1960s and 1970s is a student movement that is actually grappling with the question of what is capitalism in Ethiopia? How do we address capitalism in Ethiopia? And where, what is the connection of the nationalities question to capitalism, right? And it's a very fierce debate within the student movement, right? What I would say is that in 1974, the student movement is part of overthrowing um, Haile Selassie. And I would say it's one part of the student movement that wins in terms of the ideas that come to constitute um, the policy that is taken up by the Derg regime, right? And I would say that the other part of the student movement, the one that has a very different understanding of how to address the nationalities questions, starts a rural insurgency um, in uh, the countryside in Ethiopia to fight the Derg. Right. And this, I think this is really important to remember is that you it's, you know, 1974 is one side of the student movement winning and 1991 is the other side of the student movement. Oh. winning, Right. And so the, the, the constitution that comes out of uh, the 1991 political settlement. Right. Is still the language of the student movement, which is why we can talk about sovereignty in Ethiopia today as resting in the nation's nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia. It doesn't. There's no central um, federal authority through which sovereignty is expressed in Ethiopia. The constitution says that sovereignty resides within the nation's nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia. And that all of that language is coming from the student movement. If you look at the, the journals and writings of the student movement, I mean, the, the language verbatim is being reproduced in, in the constitution, basically, right? And in the, in the policy that gets taken up. So, so yeah. You kind of answered like one of the things I wrote when you were talking. I was like, "Nah, she's addressing that." This <laughs> has to tell a story about itself, because at the beginning you sort of said, "This all the state does is the state make roads, the state runs a police service, but the state is also in the process." I think in in making the roads, in running the police, in making them hurry, the language, whatever. It's also it's also like telling a story about itself and constructing a a story about itself. So here's my question, and you can yeah, you, you it's great we're having you here. So is Melis's attempt to address this that, that conundrum via the developmental state? This question of the nationalities, the right, question right. of the development. Yeah. Is is that what he comes okay. up with the project? Right. Let me let me backtrack a little bit, if I may. Sure. Um, right, because you know, so what is the nation state? I mean, the nation state is is also an interface between the international world and um, the local, right? And there is a progressive history to the nation state in Africa, right? In so much as um, the nation state, the anti-colonial nation state is attempting to to be that interface between local populations and international hierarchy, a racialized international 
hierarchy, right? Um, and 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 in so doing that, it is also trying to uh, be an interface between the ways in which capitalism um, enters into the local, right? And so we can say in some ways that the nation state in the anti-colonial nation state is always a developmental state, right? In so much as it is trying to think about how capitalism interacts with the local and how to organize the local on behalf of capitalism, sometimes always just in the interest of capitalism, sometimes as a buffer towards capitalism, right? Um, and, you know, I think one thing that's really important to think about in all of this, right, is that if we think about Mamdani and how he's talking about the city and the population in the city and the ways in which it's disconnected from the rural areas, that, that middle-class population, it doesn't produce anything, right? It is simply a comprador bourgeoisie who is mediating the relationship between the outside world and the inside or, or, or the local, right? Um, and so the question is, you know, on whose interest does that comprador bourgeoisie uh, work and, and represent and so on, right? Um, and I think that the question that the student movement was posing was saying that that comprador bourgeoisie that existed in Haile Selassie's time was simply uh, working for the interests of um, international capitalism um, for the most part and did nothing in terms of really addressing the developmental needs of the population in Ethiopia, the rural population of Ethiopia. Um, and the Derg might have had the rhetoric of wanting to address the, de the, the developmental needs of local populations, but never really succeeded in figuring out the right kinds of policies to do that. And certainly with um, with with the EPRDF, the question of the developmental state is how do you craft a state that um, is paying attention to the needs of people in the rural areas while ignoring the, the comprador bourgeoisie, because the comprador bourgeoisie in some ways is always going to undermine a developmental project that whose interests um, don't align with, with them, right? Where they are not as important in terms of how rents are organized or how you know foreign exchange is redistributed, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, certainly, I would also say that by talking about the nationalities question, um, you can have a process of um, contesting the center from below, right? That I mean, that would that would be the point of something like um, the nationalities question is this idea of um, how do you address uneven and combined development? You do it by showing the ways in which different regions have been incorporated into the nation state, right? So yeah, I would say that that was the project of EPRDF at some point, um, you know, and and certainly in the 1990s and early 2000s. Ooh, there was a lot of echo there. Um, anyway. That's, that's the enemies of the people fighting against the program. <laughs> the comfortable bourgeoisie are coming. Comfortable bourgeoisie. Okay. you right now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, what was I going to say? Uh, certainly that was the EPDRS project in the early 90s and uh, in the 90s. 90s and 2000s. And, yeah. you know, it had what they called agricultural development-led industrialization. Um, it was one that focused on increasing the capacity of smallholder farmers. The whole point of building roads and infrastructure at that time was actually about connecting uh, smallholder farmers or what the literature might call direct, you know, um, 
you know, the 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 producers, because um, the people who who actually produce something in Ethiopia again are the farmers, are the smallholder farmers that are that are actually carrying the economy, right? So how do you um, connect those producers to each other so that you get kind of a more dynamic economy that allows for um, for cal? I mean, the whole project of EPRDF is how do you build capitalism, right? But it's more inclusive capitalism, right? It's it's a it's a capitalism that it, you know brings in. Uh, different regions and peoples, right? And Rather- there are some people who would, so can you just for the sake of history, now you don't have to settle it, but they would say like, oh, Melis ran like a developmental state that was not neoliberal. Because now that you're saying not- EPDRF, in the end, it was about capitalism. Capitalism isn't always neoliberal, right? You ca- capitalism can have a strong state mm-hmm. that um, is is actually about creating the conditions of possibility for smallholder farmers to actually blossom and, and for industry. So you can have a program in Ethiopia, for instance, where, um, you know, I guess pastoralists might bring leather goods to um, a factory that is producing uh, leather purses, you know, for a luxury market, right? Um, so, but how do you connect those, those, those uh, pastoralists to, um, to that that factory, right? And that's a question of building roads and so on, right? Or how do you um, get a, a textile industry that is using inputs that are locally produced, right? Again, it's about um, getting f- farmers access to to roads and markets and so on, right? So not all forms of capitalism are are neoliberal, right? Um, and certainly, um, there EPRDF is trying to raise um, education levels. It's, it's you know, so it, it establishes a lot of schools in the countryside. It establishes a lot of health centers in the, in the countryside. Our man who is now the director of the World Health Organization was responsible for that program of establishing sort of primary health care in the countryside. Um, you know, so liter- basic things like increasing literacy, edu- access to education, health care is, you know, was part of the program but the program was about increasing people's capacities to participate in markets ultimately, right? Um, it's also like, it's the 1990s. Nobody's really trying to like be anti-capitalist at this point, right? right. <laughs> hey, you're, you're I mean, the Derek also tried that and it failed miserably. I mean, we had we had growth rates that were in the negative during the Derek, right? And then mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with the fact that you cannot really have socialism in one country, right? So, um, you know, but just the that dirt- the of, I mean, I know Will wants to ask a question, but I'm just sort of trying to because these are the kind of things that people fight on, on the Internet, which is basically and I agree with you, not all capitalism has to be neoliberal. Um, kind of the model that often we are if you're in the U.S., people tell you, oh, go look at Scandinavia. So my right. my, my quick my, my just a little other footnote to this, the Meles thing, because we, we want to get to 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 get to other questions. But Meles also, the, the difference probably between the Dirk and Meles is that Meles had, had, had popular, um, like he, uh, now my words, are, I'm losing my words, but like he had consent. I don't know if he had, like, I wouldn't overstate the consent that he okay. had. Yeah. Um, 
I, so I, I think that at a certain point, there were results from the type of development state that he was producing. There were results in education, there were results in healthcare, there were, there were definitely like a, a lot more roads, there were railway, railways being built, there were, um, you know, a, 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 a tram system that was built in Addis Ababa. Um, so there were actually results that I think made him, um, it, it appeared that he was working on behalf of the people. And I think uh, today in Ethiopia, his legacy is probably still appreciated even if uh, you know, there are TPLF and EPRDF are contested, but certainly the kinds of developmental results that he produced are 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 celebrated and and um, you know seen as popular. But did he have did he have consensus? I'm not sure. I mean, he certainly didn't build consensus within the Comprador bourgeoisie that exists um, in the city, for instance. I mean, Melis's one of the big things about uh, the fact that sovereignty is in the nation, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia is that land also resides with the nation, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia. So land um, is controlled by either the federal state or by the regional state. And obviously, you know, the, the way there's some weird sounds there. There's construction in my area. This is the problem. Right, right. right. But we can uh, hear you. We can hear you. Right, right. Uh, what was I going to say? So I mean, I there's a there's a lot of capitalists out there who are like chomping at the bit, just wanting to commodify land, right? And I and I think so much of uh, the contestations out there in terms of the legacy of EPRDF is about you know do we privatize land and if land is you know, resides with the nation, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia. How do you privatize it, right? And and I think there's a connection then between um, between the nationalities questions and and land privatization, and and that really brings back what started all of these protests that allowed that brought us to this political crisis in Ethiopia, because in many ways it was a land to the tiller uh, social movement that um, you know led to this political crisis. So. Mm. And, and this is why I think the legacy of EPRDF is complicated because as it really started to take on the language of developmentalism, it also became very much a technocratic state, right? And so in becoming a technocratic state, it had a vision of what development would look like. And, you know, damn you, we don't need to consult you. And who, who knows what your need? We know what your needs are. We don't, you, you can't tell us what your needs are. Um, and And so, so the protests in 2014, 2015 were actually a response to the fact that Addis Ababa was trying to, um, you know, increase its size by like 20, you know, 20 fold um, and bringing in a whole bunch of um, towns and villages from the Oromo region. Um, and the ways in which urban land is dealt with is really different from how rural land is dealt with. And so by bringing it into, um, bringing all of this land into the urban um, sort of an, into an urban sphere, you can deal with the process of commodifi commodification in a really different way. Um, and um, basically the protests of 2014, 2015 were just like, you can't take our land from us. You can't commodify our land in this way. You can't just tell us what de our development needs are, right? And, that, and, and those sustained processes is what led to a crisis within EPRDF. And in a sense, what's interesting, it was it was a critique of EPRDF 
on its own terms, right? So you talk about EPRDF talks about the nationalities questions, but it's not it's not even abiding by the nationalities question with this kind of technocratic developmentalism, right? It's privatizing land, even though land is supposed to be um, you know you know, vested in the nation's nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia. So on the terms that EPRDF set out for itself, the, you, you then have these protests, right, um, within the Oromo region. Um, and that really brings EPRDF into a crisis, right? Um, it, and, and by 2018, um, so it's a one-party state, but that party does have vigorous debate within it, um, and it has processes uh, within it, I mean, it, until it, that party became the Prosperity Party in 2019. But the the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front was a coalition of different ethnic parties that did have some kind of process of accountability within it. And so, within that process of accountability, there was a sense that there needed to be a shift in how um, you know the regime operated, and this allowed space for. Aromos to then control, I suppose, the Aroma Democratic, People's Democratic Party, then um, they were able to control the agenda of, um, uh, of the EPRDF, right? And this is what allowed for Abi to come into power, which is really interesting because it's a kind of, uh, like I said, a land to the tiller movement that is, is allowing Abi to come into power. But as soon as Abi comes into power, very soon after, he is like, oh, I'm actually going to abandon the entire economic program that came under EPRDF. I'm not even sure about this nationalities question. We should talk about Ethiopian unity. Uh, what is all of this ethnic division all about? Um, and um, he then start, announces that he's going to liberalize the economy and he's going to privatize um, a bunch of the parastatals and so on. Now, I think a crucial part of all of this, right, is that I, I said before, the development policy that was in place in the 1990s and early 2000s was agricultural development-led industrialization, which was really about connecting smallholder farmers together and increasing uh, productivity through connecting smallholder farmers. Um, but th there's a problem of you know foreign exchange and, and exports and how do you increase exports and so on. And so there's a bit of a policy shift, I would say, within EPRDF that coincides also with um, these protests around land development. And that is that the EPRDF starts to move towards confiscating large portions of land in order to have large commercial agriculture uh, develop. But they also become very interested in developing these export oriented zones. So invite, basically creating industrial parks where you invite F, uh, foreign investors to build factories um, in order to um, have exports um, for you know people like H&M or Gap or whoever, right? So that becomes the policy shift, right? And so the government actually starts building all of these industrial parks uh, in the hopes of attracting investment. Um, and so the and and through this process is starting to go into a lot of debt as it's building these industrial parks and trying to create this this um, economy that can participate in in you know global affairs. Um, and of course, once you start doing that, um, you know you have in order to build these industrial parts, you're, you're importing all of these inputs, but actually exports never really match the amount of um, 
you know, money that is being spent on inputs uh, for that's coming from abroad. And then you have a balance of payment problem and there's no foreign exchange in the country. And I actually think that that foreign exchange problem coincides with uh, the aroma protests as well. So you have multiple crises lining up with each other, um, which means that you have you need that there's a need for political transformation. Right. So the, the need to, to privatize is also just about the fact that there is a for, serious foreign exchange uh, uh, shortage and there's a need to raise uh, for money for an exchange, right? These are classic questions of development though. I mean, these are really things that African states have been facing for the past like 50, 60 years, right? The question of you know the role of ISIs, the question of development, um, the question of balance of payment uh, issues on foreign exchange. Right? Sorry to jump in. I mean, I wanted to, sorry, I wanted to cycle back to something you said earlier, which I thought was really fascinating. And to just see if I, if I understand the progression right. But what I find interesting is that you said that a lot of the terms of this debate were initially articulated by the student movement. And what the student movement were trying to do is develop a theory of development and nation building for Ethiopia. And what they were doing, which I thought is really fascinating, is merging the question of how to build a nation alongside the question of how to develop that nation. And so you have this, what almost seems like a kind of stages theory where you have agricultural-led industrialization and through that agricultural-led industrialization, in that moment you have the nations, nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia but you're able to overcome those divisions of nations and nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia if you're able to have this agricultural-led development which connects the people of the rural countryside, which brings them together and so on and so forth and develops their sort of connection to each other by establishing them as this productive class, this productive class of which the, the country is reliant on and which overcome these divisions based on ethnicity by becoming sort of rallied together as, as the economic drivers. But then what's interesting is that, you know, it didn't turn out that way, right? It didn't turn out the way in which the, the student movement envisaged. And so, <laughs> and you, you were talking about how it became increasingly technocratic and so on. And what I thought is, is interesting about your book, which talks about explicitly, is about how the student movement was shaped by their immersion in the academy, in their consumption of the social sciences and the political sciences and so on. So does this just happen to be, as is the case almost everywhere else in Africa, another instance of struggling, wanting to develop a theory, but then struggling to translate that theory into practice? And because there's a struggle to develop that theory into practice, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't in the ways in which people hope for them to do so and we're still trying to understand in which the ways in which we're struggling to translate that theory into, into practice sure yeah and i would say finally uh, if we have time um i would say that you know Sorry, sean has a follow-up i think if, if you if he, if he okay, wants to I'll, jump in sure i'll just say that you know um maybe we can think about adam gatacho's book world making um, after empire, which is looking at the history of anti-colonial nationalism, right? And she, make, she posits that, 
you know, the nation state as a form can have multiple meanings. It depends on, you know, the type of activism from below that transforms the meaning of the anti-colonial nation state. But I'm not convinced by this argument. And I think that one of the things we really need to think about is how the nation state as a form is, you know, really limits the kinds of ways in which internal relationships can be organized um, within that, within the nation state, right? So she's always looking at the nation state in terms of the way it interfaces with um, international hierarchy. And so, you know, sovereignty is, you know, is celebrated because um, of its anti-racist um, capacities, right? Um, but it's really reshaping the relationship between constituent members within the nation, nation state as well. And it feels like there's, there's serious limits to what um, the nation state can do in terms of how it, it arranges the, those relationships. Um, and, and I think the limits of, of those relationships are what we see in the Ethiopian case right now, right? In terms of how it ends up just becoming another kind of technocratic project mediating the relationship between, um, you know, local populations and, and capital. Yeah. Uh, Sean, did you want to follow up or are we, are we good? Sorry, I turned mute. Uh, because of my construction, I unmuted myself. <laughs> I think the construction dude's having lunch or something, so I can quickly ask my question. So I, I, it's sort of, I mean, it's kind of almost two different questions because the one relates to what Will just said. So in like, okay, let me let me ask, let me ask this one first. So how how would a state? So someone watching on Facebook, uh, Alex Demisi, I don't know if I'm saying the last one right, just asked, what does it mean that Ethiopia is now closer to U.S. style capitalism? And this gets to sort of the heart of like, you know, we, you know, we can't just leave people hanging and tell them what the problem is. And it's, it's terrible. Uh, the project ran into a corner. It's done. Well, I mean, it's a question of democracy from below too, and, and taking much more seriously what democracy from below looks like. And I think that the student movement, because it had access to like all of the scientific knowledge, and, and this is what I, my critique in a sense is like, it uses the social science to come up with a theory of the problem of Ethiopia's integration into the you know global capitalist systems, but it doesn't have a theory of what democracy from below actually looks like. And it doesn't actually even really think that that's a serious question. It doesn't really try to, to, to develop that question, right? Um, and that seems to be the issue um, that is common throughout the African continent, which is what I think Mamdani is talking about is how do we link the rural to the city in ways that are um, democratic and don't just flip flop between this sort of, you know, democratic, um, sort of this anti, what's the, what's the term that uh, Mamdani uses? Decentralized despotism and centralized authoritarianism, right? Um, so how do we actually overcome that dichotomy? Um, and I think that's about dem uh, democracy from below, which needs to be thought about in a much more serious manner. Yeah. So on that, on that, and I think unless Will has more questions, I'll just throw this one out then. So the challenge then is to, is to, to, you know, come up with a project, a political project that would do that. The problem, and I think you, uh, when I read the debate on the roundtable on H. Diplo, which I can recommend to people, Holden Young, who writes on Africa as a country, uh, he edited a series of uh, um, reviews of your book, uh, Samar Obelushi, also on Africa as a country. You're giving lots of shouts out. The, you know, it's a great series. I'd recommend it. But one of the things there was like, 
is is that all of what you describe about the student movement in the 1970s, it takes place, they, they're not in isolation. A lot of them are in the US, some in Ethiopia, they're in Europe, whatever. I think, so So if the question is like, what kind of politics has to emerge if we, if we can offer something, it, from what we can see is that obviously, once again, it's heavily influenced also, Ethiopia is not happening right now in isolation. Like the, the, the politics of Ethiopia happens with all kinds of discourses influencing it. I, I, can, I mean, for one, I think Black Lives Matter discourse is, is heavily, it's layering the politics of Ethiopia right now. And I'm curious as to just, we don't want to get into names and whatever, and, and, and Technicolor Dreamco jackets, but <laughs> I'm curious as to like how you, how, how you see like where that politics, where could a reasonable pro-poor progressive politics emerge? And can you say something about how to maneuver, not maneuver necessarily, but like how do you find your way amidst all these like noises? to make sense of like what it was very difficult. I mean, I had to go, you know, do, do a PhD to figure out how to <laughs> think about <laughs> politics. Right? I mean, it's like a kind of dark space and you just have to enter it. It's like, you know, and, and then, you know, maybe you can figure it out after years of thinking about it. And that's because um, what, what dominates politics today in Ethiopia is a kind of ethnic populism, which is really different from you know, the ways in which the nationalities questions was really trying to think about questions of uneven development and, and so on, right? And, and capitalism, right? We do, what, what we have now in Ethiopia is just like um, the sense of primordial identities um, fighting, fighting each other out um, through, through this kind of populism, right? That's, I would say populism is, is the primary framework in which I would think about what's going on in, in Ethiopia today. and everybody's participating in it. The people who um, hate each other and the people who are taking power, or whatever, it's just like all of this kind of primordial uh, ethnicity uh, identity being flung against each other, right? Um, so, so, so that it's, there's some kind of pop, uh, problem of populism. But I mean, the other thing. You think that's because the EPDRF like destroyed? Well, this is rough. This is rough, and I'm being maybe unfair. Is it because like? They were associated with the left, with that, with that sort of like Marxist left. Um, I think you may have said at some point it's ironic that most people who are left in the world right now are also people of color, are often black people, people of the you know so-called global south. So it's like in, in some ways it's interesting that why we have this kind of the the, 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 the politics take this kind of ethnic populism rather than that other kind of left politics, which I think I would have prefer. So I, I'm, I'm, do you think that it's because maybe the EPDRF just like made that project like, I don't know, it, it discredited that project so much that people cannot see something better than this kind of ethnicism right now? There's the problem of like the Comprador bourgeoisie as well, right? Like, don't forget like so much of the discourse that comes out of Ethiopia is shaped by, by precisely this, the, the, this, um, this, centralized authoritarianism that comes from the city, right? Um, and they are very much ashamed of the the Marxist tradition in Ethiopia. Um, and um, they're like, we have to enter the modern world. This Marxism is backwards. It belongs to a different era um, and so on, right? So there, there's that dynamic as well, right? Um, so, so, so the, 
the thing about the ways in which Ethiopian politics gets talked about now is like as if the intellectual traditions that have shaped the the um, problematics don't don't matter anymore, right? Um, as if there are no ideas to actually be contested. It's just evil force against good force against evil force, and we're not. It's really hard to know who's the evil force and the good force because <laughs> there's no ideas here, right? And um, we don't know what we're what what the genealogy of these these problems actually are, right? Um, so yeah, all right. I think, so I think yeah, you, you, you're exhausting you. Yeah, people are uh, yeah. Uh, question. People are coming up with more and more questions. I think we'll go have the last word. We'll I want to ask. Yeah, I want to ask one more question, which is, you know, Ethiopia is in the news a lot lately, as we opened, and there's a lot of conflict. But where are the struggles from below being waged in Ethiopia right now? To piggyback of what Sean said, if we want to look at something that has a prospect of being this democratizing force in Ethiopia right now, where do we look for that and who's participating in that? I mean, like I said, you know, the reason why we even have this political crisis um, is because we had a kind of uh, farmer's movement, a land to the tiller movement, right? That was saying, you can't take our land, you can't privatize our land, we don't want your development. So um, that was that was really interesting. but. Um, what we what we have seen is that those demands were completely appropriated and somehow turned around um, so that what we have is a regime that is, um, you know, propagating um, kind of, which has really become a neoliberal state, right? And is interested in privatization and so on, right? Not really paying attention to those initial demands that came from, from farmers. So I, I those demands still exist. They're just not being heard um, and they don't necessarily have a venue through which to speak um, at the moment, right? But of course, they will they will erupt again. I mean, because those problems haven't gotten away, right? Um, so so we'll, I'm sure we'll hear from those people again, right? In terms of actual social movements on the ground, I, I, I don't really know at the moment, like who's organizing what. I'm sure there's there's all kinds of things being organized though. Um, yeah. Okay, we we could go on. We we have questions from our audience. We could ask you. We could keep you hostage here for like another hour. But we get this is great. This is wonderful, and we and I'm happy that you that you were convinced to come on the show. I'm so happy that I kind of got you. It's like okay, I'll do it. Stop right. harassing me. So in the end, I think it worked out, and I'm so happy you came on. So thank you to our guest, Eleni Zaleke. Um, it was fun. I had a good time actually. Okay. Uh, that's. <laughs> Ah, so I'm happy now. I'm so happy right now. Thank you from uh, Will Shoki and our producer, Antoinette Engel, and myself, Sean Jacobs. Thanks for come, for listening, watching. Check out the uh, the Patreon sign up, and you can watch the whole archive of all our shows. And we'll see, we'll see you next week when we have our Christmas party, which is uh, finally where we're going to, like, I don't know what we got planned, but we have a Christmas party next week on the show. We're going to have, like, a Christmas show. Um, or would, should we call it even Christmas? Xmas or something. I don't know. We have a Christmas show. December show. December. December. December show. December. The December show. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, bye, people. Have a nice day. Everyone, see you next week. Peace.